Hi there. Welcome to Meetings with Masters or Thoughts on Music with People Who Don't Suck. This podcast is sponsored by Bonehead Music. Visit us online at www.bonehead.us. Yep, just like it sounds. www.bonehead.us. I'm your host, Dr. J, also known as Dr. Jonathan Brummel. First, I just wanted to take a moment before we start the podcast to thank Alex again for his gracious time and, more importantly, his patience. You name it, we experienced it. Uh, Technologically, this first podcast was a challenge. Uh, To sum it up in three words, Skype hates me. We reset routers, modems, wireless connections, different microphones, and we even had a fun incident with a dog in the middle. So I hope you get a little laugh out of that and... uh, put in a little dose of patience because uh, the the information that we got here is absolutely fantastic. So, hope you enjoy. And in the middle of the podcast, whenever you hear this sound, that's an indication that we've just lost connection. So, hope you have fun and hope it doesn't distract you too much from the uh, uh, interview. And again, thanks so much to Alex. He's a saint and uh Hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks so much. Drop us a line. Check out the blog at www.bonehead.us. Thanks very much. All right. So welcome today. We have one of my heroes in the trombone world. It's Mr. Alex Isles. He is uh, a demigod of the trombone world. You name it, he's done it. If you've heard uh, any type of movie, cartoon, or commercial sometime in the last 20 years, you may not know his name, but you've heard his playing He's one of the most versatile trombonists that I've ever met, plays all the horns, and does everything from studio recording to playing with the Long Beach Symphony, and uh, is a college professor as well. Alex Isles, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. It's rather warm here, uh, but uh, I'm in a nice air-conditioned area for the moment, so I'm happy. Beautiful. (laughs) Hey, I was wondering if you might be able to share with us um, just kind of a snapshot of your life story, your background. uh, with you influences for those that aren't familiar with you sure okay um well i w- i came up um in a pretty much a um non-musician household but neither of my parents played music but they both were big music um uh, that music was an important part of our lives as listeners uh, early on um well so anyway my mom went to the um uh, this meeting with the uh with the music school teacher and you know, she was asking, tell me about your son. And my, my mom said, well, he's very tall. And he said, <laughs> so he'll play trombone. And that was it. It was that simple. So, uh, I was, it was one of the two or three instruments that I was interested in playing, but, um, that was it. I, I started in fourth grade and we had a really good public school music program where I grew up in Arcadia, California and, um, went through, you know, all the way through high school playing in uh, honor groups and doing all that stuff. And I didn't really, I was more into sports for a while. That was sort of more my, more my interest. I was playing a lot of soccer and baseball and basketball mostly. And um, uh, I loved playing later on. It was when finally I, I was taking some lessons with a guy in high school. I was in junior high at the time. And um, he was getting me going on the you know Remington warm-up stuff and uh, basic sort of a practice routine. He was a very good teacher as it turned out. He was just 17 and I was 13, but he was a really good teacher. Nice. His name his name was Jim Feichman. I recently fell back in touch with him, which was nice. And uh, anyway, so um, Jim, one day, uh, he brought over some records. Uh, he brought 
you remember records, John? They were uh, a little before your time. I, I think I've heard of them. They're kind of like a uh, a big CD. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Uh, so he brought over some records of J.J. Uh, Johnson and Irby Green and Bill Watrous. And nice. I, I had been listening to some of the records in my dad's collection because he had some old Mancini records with Dick Nash, hmm. which was really the – I didn't even realize who it was, but I, that was the first sort of trombone player I heard. <laughs> and also he he had some tea garden. My dad had some tea garden records, so I was listening to those things. And then um, then then when Jim brought over these other records, it completely got me hooked. And it was like that day was was the day I really got into playing and really excited about it. And I, it's one of the, that was one of the fork in the road kind of moments people talk about with, with sometimes with music where they just that was it. You know, I was really into it. And um, my my life as a trombone geek was sort of laid out right then that day. <laughs> and um, I really started enjoying it, started listening to music and started accumulating recordings and and um, I didn't really have jazz, a jazz band in school, but we had a good um, a school band and orchestra program and great teachers, and I was really interested in it. And um, I went through high school, and I, when I went to decided to go to college, I really didn't have plans of being a music major. Um, I didn't really know that that I didn't really think about that. I was I wanted to keep all my options open for what I was going to do with the career. So I went to UCLA. I, I majored in economics at UCLA. And um, I played the whole time. I, I actually I, I got to play more than a lot of the music majors when I when I went to the when I was trying to decide what to major in. I looked through the student catalog and I noticed that music um, at UCLA anyway the undergraduate requirements were the had the most undergraduate requirements of just about any major on campus. <laughs> and I said, "There's no way I'm going to get out of here in six years, let nice. alone four. So I, I looked. I kept looking, and I saw the economics degree had the fewest <laughs> required courses, and it was a subject <laughs> that I was I was interested in. Um, you know, just in general. Anyway, it, it, I liked to write, and I liked you know reading about stuff, and I was pretty good at math. So it combined a lot of interests that I had, and I could still play music. I I, I, I maxed out the number of music courses I could take for credit in college, um, but I, I definitely am not a good example of a music major. You know, uh, <laughs> because I I. T- took the music courses, but I didn't major in music. Uh, so you were uh, majoring in economics at UCLA, and then you looked at the coursework, and then... Yeah. And so um, so I, I ended up um, an econ major, and I being in Los Angeles still, and great players that were around, um, was really great. And also my jazz band director at UCLA was a fellow named Gary Gray hmm. and he was a studio woodwind player clarinet player wonderful he played in principal clarinet with the, the, the LA Chamber Orchestra which was a very good musician as well for, for himself he conducted the jazz band at that time up in the Aspen School of Music and so wow. he got me into the Aspen School of Music uh, um, on a jazz fellowship um, a couple years, and I studied. Those are my first real serious trombone lessons that I took. Um, was with uh, Pierre Brevik and with Ron Borer wow. at the Aspen School. So that was really a great, like, intensive kind of thing to, for a couple summers that I was in college, and real inspiring. And and um, also Gary was doing a lot of movie dates at that time, hmm. and he he was doing all the original Star Trek movies back in the seventies and eighties, and um, he used to bring us to the dates. When last we left you, Mr. Isles was a young man who 
was put into the trombone because he was a tall man. His family did not have a lot of musical background, and he was attending, he was just about to attend a recording session, I believe, for the Star Trek films with his high school band director. Actually, it's, I, I, I must have jumped around a little bit. This is actually my college jazz band director oh. and the clarinet player, Gary Gray. Fantastic. We, and uh, anyway, Gary used to bring us to dates, and um, it was a uh, it was a really it was a really great thing. Um, and we had we had a um, you know we just sit there and watch the dates, and I got to see some of the players that I'd maybe heard of that. Um, I had I had never seen in person uh, players like Bill Reichenbach and uh, Malcolm McNabb and um, Vince DeRosa and all the big heavyweight players. I also wow. got to meet Dick Nash real quickly at one of those dates once. And uh, sometimes they had big orchestras for the episodic TV shows. Mm-hmm. Um, back then it was shows like Falcon Crest and things like that, which are, and uh, Dallas. They had uh, good. 30-piece orchestras that played really great music. Wow. And a lot of times it's, you know, you don't even realize it when you're watching those old shows. But anyway, that was um, that was always fun to sort of get a sense of what that was about and to understand that, you know, these people were playing music that was brand new mm-hmm. and had never been played through, and they brought it to life so immediately and so um, with, with so much... Um, musicianship and, and class it was always this great sound whenever i'd go to those sessions and listen to it and it really affected me and i i didn't really think of doing that myself it was something that was kind of out there you know the, there were the there was a group of people that were sort of these almost like secret you know like a almost uh, mythical feet uh, yeah, people they, in they a way were, yeah they were like the special ops unit <laughs> you know they were these exactly special, and and you didn't really know much about it but it was still i i as i learned um when I got out of college, I was trying to decide what to do, and um, I, I took a few. I was never good at taking tests. I was always firmly planted at the top of the bell curve in whatever mm-hmm. uh, classes I took. I was never an outstanding academic person, um, but uh, I mean, I always worked hard and got through school. But I was never real academically minded that much, um, and uh, or maybe it wasn't in the cards for me to be that way. Whatever, but um, <laughs> but I. For some reason, I, I decided to take a test. I didn't know what else I was going to do, so I took a test to look into um, uh, be, uh, entering entering this program that um, was for the uh, an insurance job. Really? And yeah. so, yeah, it was for the state California State Workers Compensation Insurance. And I took the test, and I did really well. It's like I, I couldn't believe it. I, I didn't. <laughs> I thought I was guessing most of the time, but I was in like the 98th percentile, which I never got in, you know, for any test I ever took. Wow. And um, so I got invited back for an, uh, an oral exam, which is a panel of people mm-hmm. asking a bunch of hypothetical questions. And I got through that, and then I got, uh, out of 500 of us, there were three of us that were given a job interview. It was so bizarre. Wow. And wow. so I went in for the job interview, and I basically was about to be offered the job, and I just said, you know, let me think this over. And um, then about... Two days later, um, I got a phone call from my trombone teacher at the time, who I'd now been studying with for a couple of years, Roy Main, who was wow. a wow. great teacher. And he taught all the good freelance players in Los Angeles for many, many years. He lives in San Luis Obispo now, and he's still teaching. He's tried to retire, but he just can't do it. <laughs> um, but he's a, he was a fantastic teacher, and, and um, he was very patient with me and I because I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And he asked me about the job interview. He's all, how'd it go? And I said, I told him that I was going to wait and mm-hmm. maybe get back to them. He's all, well, let me ask you this. Would you be interested in doing a cruise ship job? And I said, well, yeah. 
I said, when when would it start? He says, well, I think it starts. <laughs> I think it starts next week on nice. Friday of next week. And I said, I'm interested. So that was I. And so he stuck me on the cruise ship, <laughs> and I, I was that next Friday. I was on a plane flying to Sydney, Australia, and I uh, joined a ship for four months uh, at sea. And I basically learned did my on the job training for playing. Uh, what we call out here in the West Coast casuals, they call them club dates back east. Sure. Um, right. But playing without music and just playing songs for dancers. And it was a great experience uh, for me for ear training and for learning a repertoire of music that um, helped me to work when I got back. Mm -hmm. So then right. I started freelancing when I got back off the cruise ship. I was doing that for a while and learning more about jazz and getting my jazz playing more honed. I, did, I was sort of late to learning how to play jazz and learning about it. Um, I was in, in my late teens, early 20s, when I really started playing jazz. And um, so out on the cruise ship, I was doing a lot of ear play, you know, which sure, I call sure. it. And that was really the good, really the best training for improvising is doing that kind of playing. And um, so when I got back, I was doing rehearsal bands and doing odd gigs. And then I got called to play with uh, Maynard Ferguson. I got a phone call to send in a demo tape. And I recorded a little demo tape in a in a in a panic and uh, sent it in <laughs> to, to Steve Weist, who was the jazz, who was the trombone player with Maynard uh. at that time. And he'd been in the band for seven or eight years and he was really ready to go. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wrote so many great charts and played all these amazing solos with that band. And, and so then they offered me that job. So I was really, I felt very fortunate. So I jumped out on the road for a little while on the, for a year with Maynard, which was a fantastic experience. Um, I learned a lot about, just playing every day at a high level and getting to play solos and really helped me a lot with just sort of getting a sense of what that was about. Mm -hmm. And uh, the players in the band were so good and um, gracious and, and patient with me as a really, in a lot of ways, I was still pretty new to the whole jazz kind of thing. And so I, I learned a lot out there. And then um, about, about another year after that, I, I went out and played in, um, I got, I got a chance to play with Woody Herman's band. I toured, uh, with that band, um, John Fedchuk and Paul McKee were leaving the band, and those two guys had been on the band for well, a long time. Well. And John Fedchuk was basically the music director for the band sure. for seven or eight years, and he left, and um, and Paul McKee left. He was also just an amazing player, and and um, I went out with John Allred. He was the other trombone player in the band with mm -hmm. me, and uh, that was just amazing playing with him and get to hear him play every night. Um, was just great experience and so and also the whole lot of again really great players in that band to listen to and learn from and and um so then when i came back to la i now i had a couple credits you know and sure. under my belt and some experience and started working more and more and then i went back and started working at disneyland actually huh. in different groups um there was a season there were a lot of seasonal bands out there at christmas they'd add we'd wear funny outfits and play christmas music and a lot of the arrangements um this sort of goes back um, – a lot of the arrangements were very high-energy, exciting mm -hmm. kind of arrangements. And this kind of goes back to my first job, which I ever really had, which was the same one you had, which is playing in the Disney All-American College Band while I was in college. And uh, and um, so that experience for me was uh, going back – kind of jumping around the timeline here. But sure. when, I was in, when I was in college, I played in that band after my freshman year, and that kind of – put it in my head that being a musician is really fun um, yeah. can yeah. be really an interesting endeavor and um, again a very fine group of young players uh, all of us learning about playing professionally and a lot of the lessons I learned that summer came back to help me later in life and 
then when I started working there again after the road experience and the cruise ship, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's sort of put that back in perspective again, all the experience that I've had in the college band. So, um, uh, so I was playing in the brass quintet there at Disneyland and the Dixieland band subbing for Joey Sellers, mm-hmm. uh, who's a wonderful player and writer and, um, subbing in the Disneyland band, which is the town, sort of the town hall band, town, uh, this town band sure. that would play out in, uh, on main street and uh, odd shows that would go through there, and it was during that time that I um, I was doing a show. We had we had a lot of downtime in between our con- our performances, so I started working on excerpts a lot more, orchestral excerpts, and hmm. I prepared for a local audition for the Pacific Symphony, and I hadn't done any playing like that for about ten years, and I, I just thought, oh, I got the time, and there's an audition coming up, why not? So I I started working up the excerpts, and uh, there was another fellow in the another group across the other side of the park of Disneyland who was doing the same thing. So we'd sometimes get together on our breaks and blast excerpts at each other. It was really, so we sort of trained together a little bit. And, um, and we, we actually, both of us made the finals for that audition. Neither of us got the job, but it really was great that we were able to get that far along, um, both of us in that audition. That's really and impressive. Was, and then we both started subbing with Pacific Symphony. And so now there was this weird thing happening for me that I didn't really plan, but I had a background sort of having proven myself comfortable playing jazz and then mm-hmm. also having some experience as a now starting to develop experience anyway at that time being an orchestral player. So that's when I started getting recommended for some studio work because so often when we go to, um, when we play at recording sessions, we're not sure the kind of music and that we're going to play. And a lot of the times the people hiring you aren't quite sure Definitely. what it's going to be. Cause a lot of music's written at the very last minute and they might want something real orchestral, but then it turns out that half of it is rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Or there's might be some, there might be a, a piece of music in there that's a jazzier kind of piece, or vice versa. There might be a real orchestral piece in there that, you know, they want to have someone who's comfortable with that. So I I was sort of doing that without really trying. It was just I was interested in all that music, so sure. it was fun. And um, so that's when I started doing. That's about the time the cartoons started at Warner Brothers. Um, they there was a big push to. To, to have um, the, the original Warner Brothers um, Carl Stalling kind of sound uh, um, cartoon music mm-hmm. the cartoons that Steven Spielberg produced back then and then those were Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain and if anybody's old enough to remember those um, it's really they, impressive uh, too that those cartoons featured you know some would say watered down but not really orchestral excerpts and other quotes you know that was really heavy music yeah, it was, and it would change on a dime. You'd be playing like 1930s swing, and then suddenly go into Ride of the Valkyries, mm-hmm. and it would be like real quick. And um, lots of inside musical jokes. If if anybody's interested to, to watch some of those old cartoons, just for the music, it's really fun to to listen to the music because the composers went to great lengths to to insert lots of inside musical jokes um, throughout those cartoons. The way that the the original. Warner Brothers cartoons had lots of inside jokes that sort of gives them lasting, you know, staying power over time. But that was a great experience. I got to sit next to Alan Kaplan, who'd done all those cartoons um, as they as they started remake, making this resurgence. Um, Alan was right on the cusp of all this, mm-hmm. and he really did his homework on about learning how to play a cartoon, which is a very specific way of playing. Uh, I sort of it's analogous a little bit to the I don't know. If, if you've ever played much Dixieland music or traditional jazz, 
um, it's a real school of playing that's that's not necessarily taught in school, and mm-hmm. you you have to um, do your homework to sort of understand the role of the trombone in that kind of music. It's it's not obvious, and it's not written down. And Alan really did his homework on the cartoons. He learned how to do all the different kinds of sound effect type things with mutes and and all the there was drastic demands placed on the players for switching mutes. We learned how to switch from a cut <laughs> mute to a straight mute in like one bar at quarter note equals 120. It became wow. sort of normal for us to do that. It was nothing. I, I don't think that I've seen a mute change since then that would rival anything we had to do. From We'd go from cup to harmon <laughs> to open to plunger. To, it was insane. And Alan really came up with a system of, of how to make that work using the mutes in your lap and sort of like maybe between your legs, you know, mm-hmm. between your th- thigh and your calf, behind your leg. And so we were juggling mutes like crazy on that job, and it, and it was really fun. You know, we figure out a way to do it. We also, the bass trombonist on those cartoons, I'm getting a phone call. But oh, I'm no problem. Um, the bass trombonist, hang on, can we hang on a second? I just want to, I'll just kill the volume of it. Okay, it, I, I, they can leave a message. It's okay. Um, uh, that's my wife's line anyway, so it's not anything pressing. Um, the um, so the bass trombonist on that on those jobs uh, was Craig Ware, who now plays oh. with the Gordon Goodwin band. But Craig actually even figured out a way to play uh, harm, like Harmon Mute was on trigger notes. Um, what wow, he did is wow. he he wrapped a, a rubber band around his F trigger and. Um, and then pulled the F trigger with the rubber band and then fastened the top of the rubber band around his F attachment. <laughs> so it would basically, he basically be playing an F trombone for a few bars. Wow, and uh, wow. he figured out how to, he figured out how to attach and detach that in a split second. He was really good at it. So it was really, it was that kind of fun, kind of creative in its own way um, yeah. situation. And, and, and we had to do that music, record it so quickly films, uh, because they just had to get through it. They didn't spend a lot of time analyzing it. Um, basically just change a few things, you know, a few rhythms here and there to catch what was going on with the picture. But, you know, mm-hmm. we were cranking this stuff out. And it, it was really fun. It became kind of like a family. Um, the players all knew the demands of the music, and and it was really a lot of fun. We always went away. We always felt really good after those dates. They were a lot of fun. And uh, we all talk about that being really, we are all very fortunate to get to be a part of that for almost 10 years of uh, recording pretty wow. regularly. So that was my first, the, my, my first, um, movies were were mostly TV movies. I think the first one, first TV movie I ever played was a thing called uh, Plot to Kill Hitler, which uh, <laughs> which was uh, you know the the Valkyrie, the the mm-hmm. Tom Cruise movie that came out recently was the same story of this uh, underground plot. And it was you know anytime there's really intense drama, anytime there's a lot of things blowing up. Uh, there are a lot of trombones, and my friend also said yeah, that yeah. if usually if it's on, if there's something on the on the screen that's either blowing up or if there's a clown on the screen, <laughs> and, the, and there's a trombone, and he likes to say that the uh, that he's going to write a screenplay one day uh, where the big the big peak is going to have a lot of trombone, and he's all, and I said why what 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 would that be? What, he said well in my movie. The clown commandeers a tank, so nice. then you know, then you'll have a lot of trombone. There. <laughs> anyway, so these things all sort of. Um, this is like in the by about the early to mid '90s. This is the sort of stuff I was doing about that around '89. In 1989, I got married, and to my wife Susan, we just had our 20th anniversary. Wow! Congratulations! And, uh, thank you very much. And she's put up with living with a trombone player for 20 years, which 
is pretty remarkable in and of itself. Um, a lot of wives don't last that long, I got to say. But <laughs> if you don't mind, um, I, I think a lot of people listening, and I know myself as well, would be very curious because in our profession, and as I'm sure you well know, so many people run around and are doing this, that, and the other that longevity in a relationship like that can be challenging. <laughs> Do you have any words of wisdom and uh, maybe thoughts why you guys have been so successful? <laughs> well, it's it is a challenge, and I'm, I'm you know. The schedule that you keep when you're a freelance musician is pretty brutal on mm. on your on your partner. Um, I, I'd say it's you know there's no formula and it takes a lot of work to maintain a relationship. And even if you have a regular schedule, it's it can be challenging in other ways. Sure. Um, I, I don't really have a magic. I wish I had some magic advice to offer. <laughs> I mean, I think I was really lucky to pick a person that I picked. And who maybe she, hopefully she feels the same way. Um, I, I I have some. I'm with someone who understand uh, was quick to understand at the beginning from the beginning um, what what was entailed with being married to me. I mean, it was it was tough because especially when I was first starting out, when I was doing all kinds of weird gigs at weird hours. Sure. Um, you know, I was le I used to lead bands for a little while when I came in off the road. I used hmm. to book bands for uh, casuals and um, weddings. And that required a lot of, you know, I was doing teardown at night after a job. Sometimes it got out at midnight, and I was there till two, just tearing down the oh, sound yeah. system, oh, yeah. and then lugging it back up my apartment, up to my apartment. I couldn't leave it in my car overnight because there were so many break-ins in the cars <laughs> downstairs. So I had to load the whole PA into the into the apartment every night. It was just, and I loading them up these stairs, and it was just, it was horrendous. The paying dues part of your uh, career. Oh, no kidding! And I, I. I it was it was amazing, and I even got through that. I sometimes wonder how I got through that, and I wonder some, and I wonder how my wife got through it too. It was really those were those were pretty tricky times sometimes, but it's um, I, I think what happens is um, with music or any kind of avocation that becomes your vocation, I think it's a little tricky sometimes to um, to not let not to become so distracted by that, mm -hmm. um, and and to sort of not become kind of a narcissist about it. I, I think not. A, there's some really nice people and great, you know, upstanding people that are good friends of mine uh, that I still think get that sometimes get caught up in the um, in how much fun it is to play music. And and yeah. I don't mean that in a in a in a negative way. Um, you know the music the music business is a lot of work i mean there's yes. work that needs to be done to maintain your craft there's work that needs to be done to fill in the gaps when you're slow mm -hmm. um it's that's more personal that's it's people in between the when they're off you know it can, it can be really tough that's work in a way because you have to figure out ways to either sharpen your sword to keep your chops up or to maintain contacts with people that you haven't touched base with for a while, mm -hmm. and so you end up having to do the real work of being a musician, which is in between gigs. Yeah, and yeah. that to live with, and um, you have to remember your your partner there at times like that. You have to remember, you know, I, I made a commitment to this person, and um, I, it's really important that I don't lose track of that. And regardless of my own little petty problems that I have, you know. I'm, I wish I were doing more gigs or maybe my friend got a gig that I thought I should have got or, you know, you can really get caught up in all that stuff and you have to kind of keep on track with what you're doing and keep present with the person that you're with. Um, and sure. you know, if you maintain that teamwork, uh, it's easy to get sort of dra sort of attracted or di distracted away from, uh, from your, from your, um, 
from your team there because absolutely you know it, it's tough i mean you have these you have these um downtimes that can be really tough on people like right now for a lot of people in the summer this is a, a traditionally a very slow time for mm-hmm. recording work and the people i know that only do recording work are going nuts sometimes around this time of year usually around the end of august and those of us who have always maintained a, a variety of things that we do musically and otherwise, um, it's not quite as bad. You, it's it's just like a diversified portfolio. Sure. Um, so I've been lucky, you know, that I've always loved to play live music, and so I'm playing a few things here and there at the Hollywood Bowl this summer. Um, I've done I've subbed for Andy Martin for a week on uh, Fiddler on the Roof, which I just did a run with hmm. Topol hmm. in town here, which was great. And, um, you know, those are good jobs. And yeah. I, I mean, I don't really care whether it, you know, the, uh, the check clears the bank the same way, whether it's a recording session or a live concert or whatever. So I, I like playing music. And if it happens to, you know, provide some income, that's really terrific. I also like to play a lot of music that's, I know I'm never going to get paid for. Mm-hmm. Um, I love doing, pro- working with, pro- working on projects with people. Um, and that very often the summertime is like, okay, I'm going to be slow. That's great. I can, work on some tunes. I can maybe work up some new tunes myself um, that I've been thinking about. I can work on my doubles a little bit. I can, uh, you know, all those sorts of things. You can you can use the time, uh, at least in the medium term, you can really turn that time into something productive. And yeah. that, I think, yeah. helps. If you stay productive, I think it helps you stay sort of um, more aware of everything um, so you're not too distracted by the slow time. Because if that slow time really starts, if you start obsessing about it and being owned by it, then everything can crumble. I mean, then you become a drag to live with, and you're, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's it's a challenge. I mean, I'm, it's not like it's perfect, and and it's not like I'm so easy to live with that it's a piece of cake. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, we all got our problems, but um, but it's it's it is a challenge, and and I I think a lot of people underestimate that given their personality when they're coming out of music school or something. Um, there, there's not a course that really talks about this. I think a lot of times the reason for that is a lot of people who end up teaching, they have mm-hmm. a steady job. They don't have to worry about it. And um, and or um, they maybe didn't get to the point as players necessarily where they had to deal with this stuff. You know, sure. With, with those lean times where you're, you know, we don't have tenure <laughs> as freelance players, as you know, John. You know, Absolutely. We, you know, we're lucky to get. They're uh, only as good as the last gig. That's right. As a matter of fact, a friend of mine tells me you're only as good as your last eight bars. Um, so, and I've done some gigs with those last eight bars. I wish I had them back to this day. You know. Oh man. But um, but it's um, yeah, it is it is a challenge. I mean, that, obviously, the question you ask is probably an entire <laughs> course oh, <laughs> that could be course. taught. Um, but it's it, maybe it's a psychology course that may be worth having for musicians. Absolutely. Um, I've got a, I've got a lot of. I got a lot out of reading a few books um, by some people that aren't necessarily specifically to do with this topic, but help sort of put some of that stuff in perspective for me. And um, some of them are those books by Don Green, who talks about audition preparation. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the things he talks about there uh, apply even when you're not preparing for an audition. Um, How you sort of keep your head mentally um, in in the right direction so you're not getting too caught up in your own chatter, inner chatter. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's that's a challenge. Um, I found um, I've, I've done a little bit of um, study of meditation and things like that, and that's been really beneficial too. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of differentiating between um, what meditation is and what relaxing is. I think yeah. having a sense of that difference is really beneficial for all for everybody, but especially for us as musicians because we're sort of 
we're we're forced to sort of redline our nerves sometimes, mm-hmm. and um, that can that can lead to some real highs uh, that are addictive. Um, yeah. your, your excitement about playing can be very addicting, yet it can also be extremely uh, self defeating. <laughs> sometimes, you know, when things don't go so well, you can really get more down than you really need to be. Absolutely, and beat yourself up. So. I, I like those. Those books are really useful for some ideas about that. And also the um, uh, uh, Effortless Mastery by uh, oh, yes. Kenny Werner's books. I, I found those really useful. A lot of people are recommending those books these days. And I, I think those two guys really seem to have uh, – I, I seem to have got to those books at a good time in my own playing mm-hmm. uh, career. So anyway. It's one uh, of the that, things, honestly, that attracts me a lot to you personally and I try to emulate in my own playing and career um, you always have such a positive energy and such, you just seem very grounded and very real and you don't have a lot of the, uh, emotional baggage about you that a lot of the guys you run into on the road seem to. Well, thank you very much. That's very nice of you to say. I mean, like I said, we all got our own problems to deal with, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but it's, it, thank you very much. And I, I hope that that, you know, I hope that if, if people think that um, that that's a possibility for them, then I, I feel like I'm doing my job uh, as a musician. I, I I had a music conductor that I that I've done stuff with, who's actually the conductor down Long Beach Symphony, and hmm. he usually uh, he gives us almost the exact same pep talk before every concert after the last <laughs> rehearsal. But but it's really good. One yeah. of the things he says: our only responsibility, really, as musicians, is to share what we have. And it sounds kind of simplistic. But the fact is, if you sort of extend that perspective out a little bit, um, whether you're playing, whether you're teaching, whether you're just hanging out with friends, I mean, the, the thing that really turns me on about music and about and it attracts me to music that I'm hearing or musicians that I'm hanging out with mm-hmm. or t- music teachers that I've had, they've always shared things rather than, you know, Uh, being didactic you know really a a heavy sort of heavy-handed teacher saying well you need to do this you need to do that there seems there was there's always this way of saying hey check this out this you're gonna dig this you Mm -hmm. know check it out and they're almost always right you know it's like yeah i do that's great you know then it then it sort of gives you that little aha feeling rather than okay kid if you're gonna survive you got to do a b and c I mean yeah. that's fine, but I think you, there has to be sort of this sense of discovery, uh, and and that's what really gets people locked into music. I, as I think that that's and, and as musicians, when we do that, we do we're at our best. Um, and and again, in any avenue, whether you're playing, whether you're teaching, whether you're composing, um, you're sharing something with someone, and it, it's you're giving something to them. And, mm-hmm. and it's if you think of it that way, rather than check this out, you should hire me because I'm the best at this, or you know, this is the best music you're ever going to hear. You know, rather than think of it as something sort of uh, like a like an athletic event. Exactly. Um, it, I think it sort of it sort of puts some stuff in the right place. And I, every time he says that, I, I think, yeah, you know what? That's really true. It's it's really, and and I think when you take on that responsibility, it it, um, it kind of changes the way you think about music um, a little bit. And um, you know, I, I think as somebody said recently, I read I read a little article about some people were listening to some music and they said the music they really love is not the music where people are, are executing it really well and mm-hmm. it sounds good. They really like the music that they, that they get the sense that the people who are performing it absolutely their lives are depending on whether or not you hear it. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and I think that kind of performance uh, mentality is the sort of stuff that, 
that fuels the the Itzhak Perlmans, the Yo-Yo Ma's, you know, the the Hillary Hans, the the mm-hmm. um, the Wynton Marsalis's. I think they really are thinking that way. I mean, I, I really think that 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 kind of attitude as performers is is in droves in those in the people in the names I just mentioned. Um, they there's a sense that they if they if they don't get something across to you they they don't they're going to feel like they're not getting it done you know and uh, it's 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 a good I, I I don't know that's just a funny thing that my conductor says that I I don't even know if he thinks about it that much anymore but it really does it really did stick with me and uh, so anyway that's I'm glad that you, you if I have any kind of attitude close to that I'm I feel like I'm doing my job so it's good that's outstanding yeah. let me ask you. Um, in your because pl- a lot of the people that I'm working with and students and also myself, we tend to kind of pigeonhole ourselves and just kind of get narrow minded and kind of get stuck in a problem or something like that and feel like we're the only ones that have ever gone through it. And <laughs> sure. I know a guy I was just working with the other day, uh, we were talking and I kind of um, coached him a little bit with a question for you. But basically, we we're wondering, what have you struggled with uh, in your career or, you know, even not, not necessarily on trombone or even in just life, but what was the biggest challenge that you've overcome and has actually turned into a strength for you now? Huh. Oh, well, that's that's an interesting question. I, I, I'd i say one of the things that I was, I can work sort of backwards. Um, one of the things I think I'm fortunate it, it, for me um, that some people don't, um, they don't realize, maybe they don't realize what they can do. They, they don't, I think that's a big part of it. I think sometimes when you have a problem or you don't, well, jumping around, let's see, where can I start? (laughs) Um, I think sometimes I'm exposed maybe to a musician that has a a, a quality in their musicianship that is so awesome to me. I'm thinking of people like the first time I I heard Jerry, I worked with Jerry Hay, Mm -hmm. the trumpet player, who's just a magnificent musician. Yeah. He's not playing so much these days, but hmm. he's still in the studio a lot as a writer and as a as a conductor occasionally and as a producer kind of person. Interesting. And um, he has the most amazing ears. Um, I might have told you this story. I, I very often tell students this story when when then we were talking to him when his name comes up. We were doing a, a recording session. I think it was for a movie, and it was a big orchestra, maybe a sixty or seventy piece orchestra. And we're sight-reading a piece on the first run-through. And Jerry was playing second trumpet, I think. Malcolm McNabb was probably playing first trumpet. Mm -hmm. And we were sight-reading this piece, and it was pretty... I want to say the musical landscape was a little bit almost Hindemithian, for lack Hmm. of a better word. It was kind of a a suspense cue with some some different things. But it was a real orchestral sound. Yeah. Not atonal, but modern. Yeah. And um, pretty angular. Angular, yeah. Some stuff going on, but it wasn't too far out. Mm-hmm. So, so we were playing along. We read through this piece. This is maybe two and a half, three minute long piece of music, and some stuff to play. And it got pretty heated. And right after we finished um, the first run through, very often there's the people in the booth are talking to the conductor mm-hmm. through the headphones, and we don't hear that. So we can kind of talk amongst ourselves while they're dealing with whatever they're dealing with between the booth and the composer or the conductor. Mm-hmm. So we kind of almost split off into our separate little worlds. And during that little downtime, Jerry whispered over to the second oboist, and he said, Hey, Earl. And Earl Dummler turned around and said, Yeah. Jerry said, What's your note in bar 42? Okay, we just played this piece of music, and, and Earl says, I have an F sharp. And Jerry said, I'm pretty sure that should be an F natural. 
here we played this three-minute piece of music. And during that whole time, he sight read it. He didn't, as far as I could tell, he didn't play one wrong note behind me. He, he was doing his job more than adequately. And he still heard something else outside himself. Wow. Now, that wow. was an important, and it turned out they got, the copy of the score back to the oboes and sure enough jerry was right it was it was a wrong note Hmm. now that to me i didn't even know that that kind of ability existed you know very much i mean i knew people with good ears but that went beyond just having good ears that was being super aware of being being in two places at once basically yeah and it's 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 a long story to get to the point but the point is sometimes something's possible that you don't really knew existed. I'd say as a result of that experience of seeing that, my ear improved mm-hmm. um, over time. I, I said, you know what? It's possible. It Maybe I'm not at that level. Maybe I'll never get to that level. But that I would say if there's something that I had as a weakness as a musician, for sure, I do not have a quick ear. I don't have a what is considered a keen ear. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to really work at that. I don't have anything close to perfect pitch. Even my relative pitch can be... Uh, if I don't practice it all the time, it can get pretty rusty. Um, playing jazz was really the thing that helped me with my ear, and vice versa. Um, um, and and I, I'd say that the lesson I try to impart on students is strive every day to be able to hear every note that you're about to play. And you can sort of, again, once you know that that's what you should, kind of is a good thing to work on you can create little drills for yourself and little tests like if you're playing a piece um before you play a note just try to sing that first note mm-hmm. to yourself or if you're playing along on a piece of music um in the middle of it it's coming up to a key change see if you can sing through the next spot without picking up your horn um if you're at a rehearsal band and they pass out the chart see if you can pick up the piece of music and start singing singing along now i'm getting a phone call on the other line <laughs> oh, feel free to grab it. So that's okay. That's okay. I can I can deal with it later. That's fine. Um, see if you can sing what it is that you're going to be playing in a minute. You know, uh, a minute later. So that 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 kind of experience is really good. When I started working with some of the really best players in town, I noticed that they could sing or whistle their parts at pitch without any effort. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was you know that gives you a huge advantage when you're sight reading. And it also is a huge confidence builder when you're playing something kind of exposed. Um, because if you really are filled with that sound of that pitch in your ear, you have a lot less room for thoughts of, you know, beating yourself up. Oh, don't miss this. Don't miss it. You know, <laughs> if, it's, if all you're hearing is, bah, if that's all you're hearing in your head, you're going to hit There's the note. No There's no time for anything else. Yeah, you're already playing it you know it's already happening so yep. it's it's like yep. a, it's 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 little things like that so my ear is something i always have to work on i don't have the quickest ear in the world i was never good at singing in school um i was a little bit um i, I was made to feel kind of good recently when i went i went to the trombone festival international trombone festival in denmark and back in june yeah and, and christian Lindbergh talked about this when he started he said before he played he sang in the choir and he always sat in the back of stood in the back of the choir and he said he said everything sounded like one or two notes you know he's saying <laughs> he said he was terrible he had no sense of pitch and which is amazing to me wow to uh, say you know he just had to sort of he had to get you know music had to come to him through the portal that it was meant to for him which turned sure. out to be the beatles it was the beatles that really got him into music once he heard the beatles music made sense to him it, it, all of a sudden he could hear things 
Wow. And wow. Um, that I think that's a great lesson. And um, and so um, anyway, so ear stuff is is something that's important to me. I would say also just as far as trombone playing goes, I've mm-hmm. never had a, re- a really fast single tongue. I have always had to work on that. It wasn't till probably about seven or eight years ago that I started to really say, okay, enough is enough. Sure. <laughs> and I started sure. to rethink what I thought about articulation on the trombone in general. I, I, I completely changed how I articulated on the instrument. Um, and part of that was going to the seminar, to Joe Alessi's seminar. Um, that really changed a lot of things, and that in particular changed the way I articulated on the trombone. And I started also about the same time really starting to think of time and rhythm as being the key to technique. And hmm. regardless, of, regardless of the tempo, technique obviously is the way you do things, not necessarily how fast you do things. Um, we confuse that as brass players sometimes. We think we use the word technique, say, oh, this player has great technique. That means they play fast. But the word technique really literally means how you do something. Mm-hmm. And I had to change how I did a bunch of stuff when it came to articulation. I, and I, I started learning how to sort of back off on how I, how I tongue. And also I, I got into a thing where I had to re, re, relearn certain rhythmic patterns that I sort of gotten lazy with um and i used the arvin's book to do it but, um all the all those little um rhythmic exercises with different 16th note patterns like all those exercises that mm-hmm. are somewhere in the i don't know where they are in the book i would like my act together i'd pull up and say what sure. it is but those exercises really helped me sort of work on this issue what was and the biggest was shift um in uh, if you don't mind me asking what was the biggest shift in how you approached articulation that made the turnaround for me, the first thing was what Joe said when he heard me play. He said, it sounds to me like your ratio of how much you're tonguing to how much air there is behind it is out of whack. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's about 40%, uh, 60% tongue, 40% air. He says, work on 20% tongue, 80% air. Hmm. So that you really think, you start to read, the, the, the first thing I did was thinking of the air and the buzzing of the lips is really the start of the note. Yeah. And the tongue is there just to sort of frame it. It's not ta, it's ta. And I don't know if you can hear the difference mm-hmm. over, over, over this connection, but it's, it's the thing that Arnold Jacobs talks about, which is the rather than a capital T, small a, small h, it's small t, mm-hmm. capital A, capital H. That the tongue is the first literally thing. just becomes you know, like the spark or the impetus, but really it's just yeah. carrying forward the weight right. of the air. Right, and also that helped me with stutter attacks, which were a problem for me for a long time. That was a sort of a recurring, weird little every once in a while problem for me. Um, and th- this helped minimize that a great deal when I started working on that. Mm-hmm. So that articulation thing really was a big deal. And I, you know, I'd hear players that I'd like, uh, I really loved listening to, like I'd sit next to, like like Alan Kaplan or Charlie Loper or Andy Martin. Um, Andy, by the way, has probably the fastest single tongue of any brass player I've ever met. <laughs> um, he can single tongue, you know, swing eighth notes at quarter note equals 300. I mean, where most pe- most of the players that are at that tempo are either double tonguing or doodle tonguing. Yeah. Andy is comfortably single tonguing going along. And I that wow. was he was actually one of the players that made me realize that time his and also his sense of time is one of the best, mm-hmm. you know. Um, he and Bill Reichenbach have of the trombone players I know have are two people with 
some of the best sense of time of anyone I've ever met. And um, their single tongues are really wicked fast, <laughs> to, mm-hmm. be, to be honest. And I, I, I realized that it wasn't just that they were fast, it's they really have the sense of rhythm sure, that's, sure. that's underlying it. So improve your time and your tongue speed will improve. And I, I, I sort of thought that that was my theory, and it's it's panned out because I did, inc- you know, it goes up and down for me because I, I have to work on it. Mm-hmm. But I did get my single tongue going a lot better when I started working it this way, rather than just trying to go faster and faster and faster. I said, okay, just put it right in time. Don't absolutely, yeah. So it's like a sort sports of, player and any type of uh, any type of aberration in the form or any type of slip or even just a subtle shift anywhere. Once you speed it up in play, that's going to make the whole building fall apart. So I really yeah. agree with what you're saying about time because yeah. that rhythmic placement combined with anything in the playing is just going to yeah. cause it to fall apart. Absolutely. And I, I think it's true on so many lives. I've actually discovered that this is also true with flexibility and everything mm-hmm. else. But but it was really for me because articulation <laughs> was always something that I was frustrated with. Um, that's where it started for me. So it was a bigger lesson that came out of it. But it was through that weakness <laughs> that I found this other thing that was actually helpful on a lot of levels. Um, the other thing for me that has always been something that I, I have to work on all the time is is my low register. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all It's been, you know, my... I'd say any second partial kind of area um, has always been less reliable for me than than the rest of my the rest of my horn. I hmm. I tended to have a more, a more natural upper register um, mm-hmm. once I started playing. I don't know what has to do with my face shape or you know whatever it is. Sure. Um, sure. But I, I I I always have to spend more time um, and I have to consciously assign things to myself to make sure that my low register is, is working. And I've, I've gone through little embouchure shifts over time, changes that I've, that I've, that have helped me and, um, ways of thinking about going in and out of the middle and low register. Um, so that, that's all, I mean, there's, so there's stuff. I mean, I, I don't think there's any player that doesn't have stuff that, um, has been or continues to be a weakness. I mean, that's part mm-hmm. of the, that's part of the fun is, um, you're always going to have stuff that you're going to have to work on. And I think a player who's in, kind of in denial um just says oh yeah i'm fine with everything the way it is and, and i don't i've yet to meet that player who's totally happy with everything about their playing at every moment that they play it seems like one of the big challenges too is i'm working with uh younger students and you know even myself and other people it's it's trying to convey the message that if you're happy with it or or if you've reached that point where you think something's perfect it's time to sell the horn because there's always something you can make better about it or improve on yeah, it's true. You know, I've, most of that what you just said was pretty broken up, John. I don't know if that was a big issue or not, but oh. <laughs> you were you were breaking up. I did understand what you were saying, but it was cutting in and out. I don't know if it was on your end. It's but. kind of the way my brain works. <laughs> but it's anyway. interesting. Um, I guess a question for you would be, uh, when, when I'm working with students and other people, a, a thing that comes up is people always think that there's this huge gap between where I am now and then I have to make it perfect. And yeah. I was wondering if you have any insight or how, what's your approach as far as just trying to convey to people or even in your own experience that it's a process, not a perfection. Yeah. yeah again, I, I, I barely understood anything you said just then to break it up. Oh, okay. Um, how do you, how do you talk to students or how do you get the message across that, brass playing or any art form like this is a process and not right or wrong. Yeah. yeah I, that is a, that is a challenge. And especially in today's world 
where a lot of kids I'm, I'm teaching and working with um, are used to computers where mm-hmm. you just go into the preferences and you set things up and you, everything's set up and boom, that's it. You never have to think about it again. Um, and I try to tell them that playing a trombone is not like setting up a computer. Um, it's something you have to work on every day and, and things that you want to have tomorrow, you got to play it today to make sure that's there tomorrow. <laughs> it's not going to be guaranteed. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and and fundamentals are fundamentals every day, um, and and sort of having that where that that concept of making sure that those certain fundamentals that that are essential to playing our instrument uh, in any situation that you find yourself, you have to constantly spend some time with, even if even if it's not every day, but at least revisit certain things in your playing. You know, you have to have something that helps you work on pitch and time and and uh, tone and and control, going through registers, articulation, all those things need to be addressed every single day in some form. You don't have to do the exact same exercise every day, but you have to spend some time doing each of those things. And and that is really hard to impart on people. You have to experience the importance of that. You can't just tell someone it's important <laughs> and assume that they're going to get it. Yeah. You have to sort of work them through and challenge them and say, well, this is hard for you today, and let's talk about it. You know, well, how did how is it that this is hard today? You played this a month ago. We had no trouble with this. Why is it hard? It should be, you know, you learned this. Yeah. Well, yeah. and well, maybe you didn't really learn it the way you thought. And also, in order for you to do this, you have to keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and um, that that's just a that's a difficult concept for a lot of people. Um, well, and I I think what you said is really true. I mean, it's it's process, not progress is really i mean once you sort of get an idea that um that you want to you want to stay on course without necessarily any end goal um i think some people especially with our education style that we have here in america where everything's so goal oriented the Mm -hmm. goal should be this picture you have in your head of where you want to be not the exact achievement of that goal the goal is elusive i got a dog that needs to be Yeah, that it is. It is really. I, I haven't really got a good, short, quick, you know, witty or or insightful answer to that question. But um, it's. I, I think that's that's a real test of a good teacher in a lot of ways is how to sort of show rather than tell a student mm-hmm. that they need to do certain things or, or stay on course. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I and um, again I, that image of of, of what you want to sound like is a goal that you you might not ever get to but that's what the goal has to be it's it's a goal some it's a, it's a goal that is in uh, is impossible to achieve but is essential yeah um yeah. we, we you all have to keep developing you keep learning more but at the same yeah. time your standards and your expectations get higher yeah if if you've ever done math at all you know it's like a graph that's you know like a an arc that goes up and it, there's a line next to it the, the line's called an asymptote and the li- and the curve Keeps going up, almost meeting that line, but never does quite meet meet that line as it's heading forward uh, up. Mm-hmm. And that that's kind of what I, the way I think of of music is: you keep going up, but you never really reach that line that you that you're shooting for. It never you never quite touch it. It gets it infinitesimally close, <laughs> but never quite gets it. Sure. And uh, and also there's that that idea that Arnold Jacobs talks about too, and his I read in his books that um you know when he practiced he had he had two tubas that he thought about. One was the piece of metal sitting in his lap that he was playing into. And the other tuba that was the one that was in his head. 
And he said that more important of those two was the one that was in his head. That was the one he really, that's the one that he really practiced. Um, and, and that one didn't even exist, never existed in the real world. But that was the one that you really are practicing. You know, when you practice, that's the one you're trying to connect with. And, um, I think that's, that's a a great goal Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, that's, that's not a, uh, it's not in our sort of Western thinking. That's, you know, we like to see practice charts filled in with um, metronome <laughs> markings and range requirements and those sorts of things that are that are sort of um, uh, that that you can test. Um, Very tangible right? goals and uh, feedback. Yeah, which I think there's a place for, but ultimately the musicians that really get something and again are, are, are can sort of dis- display music to other people mm-hmm. are the ones that go beyond that. Definitely. You know, again, and so. It's difficult, you know, like some people say, well, my kid's never going to be a Paganini on the violin, but, you know, how can I just get him to play better? Well, you just answered your own question. I, I think maybe that they should do something else if that's yeah. the way everybody's thinking. You know, we don't need another Paganini, right? But we also don't need someone who's who's just going to do music to meet some criteria. I, I was reading the other day, too, that somebody said music is the only subject taught in school that they have to rationalize. You have to ra- – there's a need – by educators to have to rationalize to administrators that music will help kids in other subjects. Yeah. Now there should be intrinsic value to music that should be learned because it's important for our society to have people that know something about music, not because music makes your test scores better Sure. and makes you better in math. That's mm-hmm. not a reason to do music necessarily. Maybe it's a byproduct, but the reason you do music is to do music because a world with music is a better place than a world without it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't know. But anyway, that's we're getting on a tangent here, and that's the way I that's the way I roll, John. <laughs> that's the beauty and, uh, of you. <laughs> these tangents. Yeah, I have an I have a student who's an older student. Mm-hmm. He's 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 been off the horn for almost forty years. Wow. And uh, so he he came back to the to playing trombone after a long layoff, and uh, he's actually a he's also a, 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 a he's an evangelical minister hmm. and uh, so he'll he I crack him up I think because I'll maybe start talking about something and uh, he starts looking at me he's all you're worse than I am in a sermon <laughs> 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 you got you start going all this fire and brimstone what are you doing you know and, okay you're right sorry you know he's back on track yeah <laughs> but uh, anyway um, yeah it's it's I, I think that that process and and perfection thing is something a lot of people um, are, are struggling with and you know music can be so fun even at the even at the worst level you know when it's mm-hmm. really bad you're, you're playing badly you should still be able to that's what it is that day and that's hard for a lot of people to sort of accept you yeah know, that it, you know and it's a lot of the times it's it, it's it's not as bad as you might think it is on your side of the instrument sure you know? that's but that's still hard to tell people when they've you know they feel like they're playing badly or something like that stuff let me ask you a question, because so much of the playing that you've done in the studios is a pretty high-pressure situation, um, what approach do you, or how do you enter that situation, or how do you deal with that type of pressure in that situation? Um, on the video games and stuff that I've done up here at Skywalker, you know, it, there is an immense amount of pressure, but it's it's always it's a different environment than many of the other gigs, and I know a lot of the people that I work with are always curious and they put so much pressure on the everyday playing. Do you have well, any idea or how, how to reconcile, you know, your experience there with the everyday type stuff or what people can do? Oh yeah. It's funny. Um, 
for me, uh, that thing you're talking about with, with the idea of pressure, um, that can creep in at, the, at funny times. It, it seems like it's almost, it's, it's illusory. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've, I've, I've had that feeling where I felt more pressure suddenly for no reason. There probably is a reason, but I'm just not aware of it at the time. In live situations, in recording situations, I've got it. I've had, I've sailed through some stuff that was after the fact. I go, man, that was insane. What? I can't believe I just did that. Yeah. And then there've been other times when I'm playing something relatively simple, and it all of a sudden it's like I got to figure out a way. I got to figure a way out of this. I'm suddenly up against the ropes, and it's funny how sometimes that happens. It can sneak up on you. Um, I try really hard, and it sort of goes back to what I was saying before. If you fill your head, if you're if you're programming your head to be filled with sounds, um, and the sound, preferably the sound you're hopefully you're going about you're about to make, that note. Um, once that first note starts, you're you're usually off to the races. Um, for, at least for me, in most of this, those sort of pressure situations, um, if I have a good sense of that first note. Um, I'm, it usually helps me a lot to be able to get through the rest of it. Um, if I have, and then maybe later on in, in a piece of music, if there's transitions that are tricky, I try to make sh- sort of visualize my way through those transitions if I can once or twice. Um, you know, with uh, with that sound again, doing it at pitch and in time, mm-hmm. um, the way that maybe a pole vaulter goes. You know, the pole vaulters and, and high jumpers are the probably the best at having a visual image of what it is they're about to do before they do it. Um, as a matter of fact, I, there's a tuba player and music teacher down here who was a Olympic uh, high jumper. Huh. And very interesting guy. And I, I wanted to try and get him to do a little chat sometime to like, uh, you know, I, he could he could do something at, a, at one of the trombone conferences for sure. He'd be great. Yeah. Talking about this issue of bringing in his experience as a, as a high jumper to the idea of maybe playing an audition or a high-pressure musical situation sure. because it's so similar. But you can't just think of something that day. You have to practice it away from the gig. Mm-hmm. Um, at, every time you pick up your horn, you have to get into that habit of being you know, being confident, basically. You can't just talk yourself into it. You have to actually do something that puts the sound and the time of what it is you're about to play right in your at the front of your head. Yeah. And if yeah. you do that, then... It does two things. First of all, it, you're you're already in the music before you play a note, and then you're also distracted emotionally. <laughs> you're detached emotionally because your brain is thinking about this other stuff. You've got yeah. to focus yeah. on that. And um, you know, some of the recording situations, we we did a, a very high pressure kind of situation um, for um, uh, the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. That movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that movie. Um, yeah, Alex Desplat, Alexander Desplat is a French composer. He did the score, hmm. and he's an amazing film composer. He writes very unusual music with very interesting colors and orchestration, and it's very sparse orchestral music, and it's ethereal. Mm-hmm. And um, there were some trombone things to play, and I, I was on a lot of the score. I was the only trombone. It was just just me and a French horn, wow. some strings, wow. and a clarinet. It was a very light score. And he made he made a pretty big speech to me before the session. At, when I got there, he said the I, I want he introduced himself and he said, which is very rare. You know, usually you just go and play your part and go. Sure. But he was sure. very specific this day. He said the way I want the trombone to sound here is you're going to be playing sounds with the alto flute in a in a mute. It might be a cut <laughs> mute. It might, it might be a cut mute. It might be a bucket mute. But I want you to blend and make a sound that's 
kind of a third sound. And wow. I said, great, I love that kind of stuff. Let's do it. Yeah, that's cool. I'm thinking in my head. And then he said, I also want to have a hint of jazz to this. Mm-hmm. I want a little vibrato at times, but I don't want it to be too over the top. I just want it to be hinted at. So it's like, wow, there's something to think about. So here's a couple little program program moments to sort of give me something to and it was all high, it was all high C's and B's and, and for hours. We did three hours on this one cue where I had to come in cold on some notes and it was nice. a little a little scary. But it, it went really well. Once I once I sort of picked up on what he wanted, then I could mm-hmm. really focus on that. I, I then it, the the me part of it was out of the equation because I had the job in front of me more than than me at, exactly. at that point. And that helped. Um, and myself and the French horn player in that movie it just sounded great. His name's Mark Adams. He just played beautifully on that soundtrack. And um, and Malcolm McNabb played the, the trumpet solos. And, they're, they're, and it goes by kind of quickly. You, you might miss it if you're not listening for it. But mm-hmm. there is this beautiful, evocative kind of French <laughs> quality to that score. And, and that was a pretty high-pressure – that was one of the most high-pressure sort of recording things I'd done. Um, and I used my little horn that day. I was not. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not too. I was not proud that day. I, I, I had no problem <laughs> saying, you know what? This is just a little tricky for me to play on my on my large tenor. So I, I sure. played my small tenor that day. But I mean, that, those are those are. I mean, it's a challenge. And I, I every every time I you go to work, you're never sure what you're going to have to do. You know, you can get thrown something real quickly. Um, I had a, a a kind of a high pressure thing to play once playing third trombone out of five. There were five trombones on a movie with James Horner. Hmm. And the way he likes to write um, sometimes, or his orchestrators orchestrate things, is the, the two tenors are on top. And I was playing third, which is a sort of a swing chair. I'll play some bass, play some tenor. Yeah. And then yeah. The, the other two guys are bass trombones specifically, usually. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of this tweener chair. You're like a, you're like a, middle, <laughs> line, you're like a middle linebacker or, yep. or a tight end. And so... Um, I was playing bass trombone most of the day, and then suddenly he wrote a third trombone part that was like a first trombone part on top of the two bass trombones, and then the other two tenors had something with the horns. So I was playing. All of a sudden, I'm having to play above the staff, and um, it was pretty exposed. And mm-hmm. he, he was giving me all kinds of instructions. Okay, I'm playing third trombone, and I'm definitely not there to coast. I had to, I had to really think about what I was doing, and that was the first time I'd worked for him, so I was like, oh, man, <laughs> here we go. It's like a... <laughs> Out of eighty, out of an eighty-piece orchestra, the third trombone's in the hot seat. It, yeah. You just never yeah. know. You, sometimes you just never know. Yeah, that's 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 gonna be that way. So sometimes it's interesting that that way when we go to work, <laughs> it's gonna be kind of crazy. Definitely. Hey, let me ask you um, on the in regards to gear. You were talking about using the small horn there versus you know playing on the large tenor. Um, uh-huh. As somebody who's been incredibly successful, you know, in the commercial world, but also with a great, you know, you won the Long Beach Symphony job. Have you noticed any change in the gear or artillery? It seems like over the last few decades, things have gone from, you know, where they used to be to rather large. And then now they're swinging back, perhaps, or right. when to use the right tool for the right job. What's your philosophy yeah. on that? It's... Um it's it's an ongoing thing, and the, you know the, some of this is some of these changes are are tied into fad, like mm-hmm. like like so many things. But for for most of us, I think, or if we're, you know, it's just as a freelance player, even if I wasn't doing recording, I'd probably play a lot of different horns for different things. I know talking to players I know in New York, who don't really do film work that much, but they do lots of different kinds of playing. They're the same as we are. I mean, they they're switching horns, they're hmm. maybe switching mouthpieces, and you know, it, it seems to be kind of 
what you do. Um, yeah. Some I know very few players that just play one horn and show up and that's it. Yeah. There, there are a few players like that. Not many out here, I must say. Um, when we show up for recording sessions, most of us bring three instruments. We bring a, especially the tenor players. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll bring a tenor, a bass, and a small tenor. That's kind of standard. I've gotten in the habit of sometimes bringing um, a couple different small tenors. Hmm. Um, the reason why is I've, I've been messing around with this 2B plus, and I really like it. Yeah. Um, and I use a slightly bigger mouthpiece. And it, some, with some of the play, sections I play in and the parts I play, that, that actually feels easier for me. Um, and ease is the key for me. Uh, easy is good. And um, if, if I'm playing middle register kind of big band section parts, that 2B plus is, is a really a great horn for me to play. I really like it. And um, I, my standard small bore horn that I and I do most of the jazz playing that I do is on my as an old 2B, mm-hmm. which is you know is a little bit smaller than the 2B plus. And I use a slightly smaller mouthpiece on that. On, on my 2B plus, 2B plus, I've been using a um, a, a Warburton seven, hmm. but I've been using uh, a six and three quarter C actually on my. 2B, which is a little big, a little bigger than what I used to play. I used to play an 11, a New York 11C for years. Yeah, yeah. But so, just like one day, I was playing this, and I went, you know, is this too small for me? I, I suddenly <laughs> started to think. And so I was talking to Charlie Loper, who was sort of my R&D department. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it, he, he experiments with equipment, and he's done a lot of experimenting with equipment over the years. He and uh-huh. Alan Kaplan both, those, both those guys. They're the ones I go to when I'm thinking about stuff. And I'll ask them. And sure enough, Charlie said, let me bring something to you next week. So he had a six and three quarter C that he had that he wasn't using. And he loaned to me. And it's been on kind of on permanent loan to me for a (laughs) while. And I have to replace it. I mean, I have to find I have to get his mouthpiece back to him someday. But I'm still looking for the ultimate six and three quarter C. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've tried a bunch and there's none of them are as good as Charlie's. I think because Charlie played it, he put some weird voodoo uh, that he only he can do, where he plays a note on an instrument, and that instrument plays better. I don't know and why, blast, but uh, oh, Charlie, he's just he aligns the molecules. It's like a cryogenic freeze when he <laughs> plays. It. That guy, I don't know what it is about his sound, his approach. Everything he does is such class. You know, every note that comes out of his horn, and uh, every horn I've played of his, I want his horn. It's like Charlie, when do you want to sell this? <laughs> you know, I don't know what it is, but anyway, I'm still looking for the magical six and three quarter C, but. Um, but I, that's what I use on my small, small, my small horns. Um, and generally, I, I use the small horns. You know, obviously, if we're doing something real swingy or um, big bandish, mm-hmm. I'll use that. Um, but I also use it a lot on, you know, and on the rock and roll kind of stuff. And that's why I, that two B plus is great because it, it has a little bit beefier sound. Sure. If, I'm, if, if the sound is a little more pankow ish, um, mm-hmm. it's kind of it, it has a little bit more of that sound to it, which I like. Or if it's more in a Latin vein, sometimes just having a little more bottom end in the sound, it's easier to get that sound going. Definitely, important yeah. for me. Um, but um, I've used, I brought that two B, my little two B, I brought into the orchestra a couple times. I, I played it on a on a symphony by Chavez. There's, I think it's the second symphony. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a big trombone solo in that. Uh, Chavez must have had a trombone player he was writing for because a bunch of his symphonies he wrote a trombone concerto that Christian Lindbergh recorded oh. but but this this symphony has a solo in it and it's about a minute into the piece and before you know it the trombone is all by itself playing this little melodic line and it's real pretty um, and suddenly it it rounds off to this high E <laughs> And you're just, you can't, you, you, you see it coming. I, I remember when I was listening to the piece, 
I just thought, no, this isn't. <laughs> and there it is. So I said, forget it. I, I do not want to try to play that on my on a big big tenor. I, sure. I refuse. And it, and it had a sort of Dorsey-ish kind of quality to it when I heard it. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know that, and it worked out fine for me. I played it, and I asked our com- our conductor Enrique, who uh, is from Mexico, so I, he knows quite a bit about Chavez. And I think even you know studied with people who's taught Chavez and he I said what was Chavez's story he sort of whispered to me he's all I said what was his story what, what was it with that trombone he writes these trombone solos that are so difficult he must have had a good player he was writing for and Enrique looked over both shoulders and whispered to me he said I think that trombone player was the president of the union and he didn't like him <laughs> <laughs> I, you know it was a it was a I, it was kind of a a, a, a tall tale, but I, I just you know sure. it, it was it was funny, but because it really it does hang you out to dry. Um, but so I have brought the little little. I'm not afraid to bring a little horn in to play in an orchestra. I don't I I, I don't think of the uh, size of the bore as a stylistic thing specifically. I, I think it's mm-hmm. again getting the job done. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think there are times when a, a big horn can can sound uh, kind of. The, it's the wrong sound for certain kinds of music for me, sure. even in an orchestra. And for me, playing the small tenor, sometimes I, I'm more in control. And, it, and again, it's easier for me to play uh, that instrument. I've spent a lot of time playing that instrument, and I've I've never thought of it as just, oh, it's my jazz horn. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always tried to get as good a characteristic sound out of every instrument that I play. Um, and I, I don't see any difference um, stylistically. I, I, it kind of bugs me. I, maybe I'm, I'm, I've got kind of a... Um, a Jones for this when I hear people talk about their small tenor. Oh yeah, my jazz one. It's like, no, it's your small tenor. There's there's a place in other kinds of music for that instrument. If Definitely. You want. I mean, now when I hear Lloyd Elliott and those old recordings of Lloyd or Joe Howard, mm-hmm. who was playing a two B on a, on, and he was playing a really small mouthpiece. I think he was playing at twelve or even a smaller mouthpiece than that. Wow. These guys, these that sound that the guys got out of those instruments were was so big. It was totally sit perfectly in a symphony orchestra yeah um, yep. you know it's not it's really not the issue is is not the uh the bore size it's it's the it's musical concept is so much more important than that anyway but i do use i do love the big tenor i mean that's what mm-hmm. i do most of my recording work on I, i'm most comfortable playing that uh for most orchestral music um i play an 8h most of the time in the studios um it's convertible to be used as an 88h as well i throw an f trigger on there when i have to mm-hmm. <laughs> i prefer not to again ease of play for me it's easier to when we're working for six hours straight it's just so much easier to have a lighter instrument I'm yeah kind of lighter. and then i have a yamaha bass trombone that i that i've had for a long time that i use probably a third to a half of my work i'm playing bass trombone yeah for recording yeah. So and you, you know if you guys are doing those um, video games, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, up there. there's a lot of ninety nine percent of the day. I, I mean, yeah. I'm playing the second part, but I ninety five percent of it was bass trombone with yeah. one or two cuts on tenor. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, second trombone most of these days means bass trombone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's and, and that actually provides some confusion. Uh, that's sort of where the playing bass trombone came into play because mm-hmm. a lot of people in the old days when they started to just use two trombones they would call their number one and number two tenor trombone players yeah and so suddenly the second trombone player had to double on bass um, a lot and um, they didn't think to go oh the third trombone is the person i should call for the second trombone chair for this job but they didn't think that way they just yeah. went down their list so you know the whole idea of doubling to me um i've always had a tr- i've always had, i use that word but i i every i cringe every time i use it because amen I really, I really strongly believe that the uh, every time you play an instrument, you should be a player of that instrument 
even if you kind of stink at it, that's what you do. <laughs> uh, you know, I might be, I'd rather be a stinky bass trombone player than a tenor trombone doubler. I, I, Definitely. It's more, it's more honest, you know, and so, and it also makes you practice. If you practice, it, it makes your practice better. If you don't think of it as a double, then you're going to practice it because you're not going to go in there being, you know, yep. being a, a, apologetic about what you do. This is what you do regardless. And, uh, it changes the way you practice if you know that you can't use that word. Absolutely. I think of it really, it's, you know, it's really, I find it an insult for somebody to call me a doubler because I really credit a lot of that to you and to Bill Reichenbach. Mm-hmm. You know, it's if I'm playing that instrument, I am that player. And if I'm going to play this, I'm that person. It's not, yeah. you know, halfway. Yeah, and, it, and that doesn't happen automatically. I mean, you can, you can sort of, some people sort of make that decision, but then they forget that they actually have to, okay, now that, You've made that decision. You've declared this, but now the responsibility is to now actually live up it. to it. Yep. Yeah, and and that's that's <laughs> challenging. I mean, that's that takes time. You know, you got to spend some time on those other instruments, and um, you know, that's I, I was playing a lot of tuba there for a while. Hmm. Um, there was there was a, a TV show that came up, an animated show, uh, Buzz Lightyear. Oh yeah. And um, that when that came up, they uh, the call came out and said hey, hey, the contractor asked me, Hey Alex, do you, do you play tuba? And I said. Well, how much do I need to do this? <laughs> and he said, well, they said about a quarter of the book is tuba. And I said, wow. when does the show start? And they said, well, in a couple of weeks. And I said, well, let me get an instrument and let me talk to the composer and see if we can work this out. Because mm-hmm. I, I want to I see if we can work this out. And so I did that. And, I, and also I told Alan Kaplan was on the job and he plays quite a bit of tuba. And so he offered, he was really cool. He said, I'll bring my tuba. If you get hung up, I'll do it. Okay, nice. so I had an out, which is very rare, and it's probably in a lot of ways was not really the right thing to do um, because you know you, 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 other people's lives are at stake. Sure. <laughs> you know their 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 careers are at stake too. I mean, the composer yeah. has to pr- produce good product. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, between Alan and me, we we got through it really well. And if I had to play on bass trombone, he said, "Fine, play it on bass trombone if you have to." And I I basically learned on the job, which I don't recommend to people. The way to learn a, a, an instrument like that, if you've never played tuba, is to Spend a lot of time making sure you can do everything you do on the trombone down an octave as, yeah. as best yeah. you can with confidence, and then slowly but surely start playing tuba duets with another person trying to do it the same way you are, or a pretty bad tuba player. Yeah, and get together and just do it, and then get then get some really kind of like amateur <laughs> uh, brass players and get a brass quintet and start going through some of that stuff and learning really easy brass quintet repertoire and work your way into it yeah. so that you kind of come up slowly. But I, unfortunately, I had to sort of do it trial by fire. Wow. Um, and, and But it, it worked out okay. And then there was another TV show that came up where we had to play tenor, bass, euphonium, and tuba was the chair that I did. So I had all four <laughs> horns, and it was insane. And, nice. Um, and uh, that was... Uh, Commander-in-Chief, which was a Gina Davis TV show that yeah. lasted a, a season or two. And that was really beautiful music, and they, they scored it with two French horns, these two low brass chairs, and uh, two flugelhorns, and who doubled on trumpet. So they, the flugelhorn was their main instrument, and then they doubled on trumpet. So there were times when we had two French horns, two flugelhorns, euphonium, and tuba. So it was almost like a big French horn section sometimes. And it got so many. They got so many colors out of this small brass section. It was really a fun show, and that was my first experience, and probably will be my last big experience of playing tuba in an orchestra mm-hmm. with with a string section and no basses. So I wow. was it. That was a real challenge, um, making sure that everything was lined up, and it was it was definitely a challenge. 
Um, sorry about my dog barking. Oh, no problem. Lot, but again, that's how we roll around here. Exactly. Um, well, I'll tell you uh, what. Um, you've been really, really generous with your time. Um, I've got two questions that I would sure. love to ask you before we Absolutely. run out here. Sure. Uh, first is from a young friend of mine. His name is Will, and he's just starting out on on the trombone. And he's kind of how we addressed a little earlier. He, uh, he, like a lot of us, tend to really be hypercritical of ourselves. Um, and a lot of it is, it's, you know, due to the fact that A, we just haven't had experience, or B, we just didn't put in the time. But he was uh-huh. wondering, are somebody like yourself, who's incredibly accomplished in all genres, are you ever afraid of making mistakes? Absolutely. I mean, I don't think any musician um, is uh, immune to this. I mean, we all have a fear of sounding bad. I think it's a matter of timing. Um, if you fear sounding bad away from the time that you will have the potential of sounding bad, you, you have a good chance of sort of heading it off the pass. Um, first of all, you have to get past that. Um, I, if it's any consolation, I've heard top name, top level players um, have bad days. I've, the best players you can mention in the world, I've heard them all have a bad day. Um, and also, that's the first thing. And the second thing is, this: the sun's still going to rise tomorrow. Nobody, and, and everybody pretty much will forget bad mistakes. Um, the, 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 uh, to me, the, the ultimate thing is, is to really know the musical situation that you're in. Be familiar with it. And that familiarity and comfort will help you to sound good, even if you make mistakes. You know, there, some of my favorite recordings have mistakes, a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, that... Mistakes are, 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 are we're, we're so tied into this digital world of perfection that we forget that the, it's hearing someone dealing with an adrenaline rush has a quality to it that makes it beautiful. I mean, that, that is something that's there's a beauty to someone dealing with their fear. Absolutely. And, um, but, but, you know, I, Joel Leslie said that he said, fear is a great inspiration to him. <laughs> and that's, that's what makes you practice. I mean, it's really a big part of practicing is, is because you don't want to have, a, you want to minimize your worst, your worst case scenario. Yep. Um, yep. and I think practicing for that, I think sometimes people practice that they, they make the mistake that they try to improve and get their best game better all the time, mm-hmm. which yeah. is part of it. But really when you're practicing good productive practice is really setting a foundation that things don't go below. Yeah. You minim- yeah. you really practice to minimize your worst day. Mm-hmm. That's why you practice fundamentals. That's why you practice scales and and arpeggios and those sorts of things so that when you encounter these things they're they're a little more they're familiar. You've already been doing it. And um, you get your ear attuned to what you're playing. You get your everything in your body, you get your body in- connected to the music that you're making. And um, and your love of the music is something that will carry you too. Your love should outweigh the fear. And if you program yourself to love the music that much more and love playing Kind of regardless of how it comes out, mm-hmm. um, and again, this is this comes from a good teacher will help help you overcome your anger with yourself at making mistakes. You know, being able to laugh you out of it. Definitely. Um, and uh, I think those those sorts of things are, are not. You, again, you can't just suddenly make that happen on the day that you're feeling this fear and, and of mistakes. But you have to sort of know that that can happen to you and practice accordingly, and. Put yourself once in a while, every day in a practice session, you know, just say, okay, I'm going to start this piece right here and I'm going to play for eight bars and it's going to be as if I'm performing it. Yep. You know, I'm playing in a big hall. There's a bunch of people there. There's people I admire that that I, I want to, I really want to share my music with and I want to have this beautiful musical exchange between them and me. And here we go. I'm going to imagine that happening. 
and um, putting yourself in that imagination, letting your imagination be there for you can be a, a great thing. And again, being imaginative is, is something preferable to being fearful. Um, but I think they're close. They're like two sides of the same coin is having that sort of creative imagination going on is there's not much difference in a lot of ways between that and actually being scared to death. I, I, and it's, I think a lot of people don't appreciate that when they see a performer who looks so relaxed and they're just doing this great thing. They don't realize that it's just like riding in a, in a, in a, in a jet plane where you're sitting in this comfortable jet plane, but three inches on the other side is instant death um, <laughs> you know, yep. of the yep. window. And, and I, I think a lot of people sometimes underappreciate that thing. And, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that would help your student uh, deal with that, but just know that feeling fear is actually there, there's a good side to that. And if you fold on a given day, if if the fear really gets you and, and makes you collapse in a heap, um, you can make think that to say, okay, that's what that felt like. That's as bad as it's ever going to be for me when I perform. Mm-hmm. And you know, you still walk home, you, you flip on the TV or you email your friends and everything's fine. And if you take that into account, it's like, you know what, that if that's the worst it gets, I'm okay. Yeah. And then yeah. the next time, the next time it, it just gets a little bit easier. You know, the, the way to overcome fear as a performer is just to perform more, really. I mean, that that's that's really the key. And, and also finding situations that let you get your feet wet, yep. Um, yep. you know. Uh, I like playing in clubs. Uh, a lot of times, I don't. I, I don't mind, especially if I haven't performed much lately. I don't mind playing in a noisy club where no, everybody's sort of half listening. Mm-hmm. That's a great mm-hmm. way. That's a great. You know, that's a great sort of environment for me to be. Feel like you're not being as judged, and, yeah. and, and yeah. then you get more relaxed, and then you go, "Hey, this isn't so bad." Then you can step it up, and you know, go to the next situation where it's a little more intense. And obviously, the most intense of those sort of experiences is is an audition, where they're just listening to find weaknesses in your playing in a way and you know that going in and that's really that's an extreme that most people should never have to go through um, <laughs> and uh you know people who really just love to play music shouldn't have to go through that i don't think but um but if you really do love the music and you prepare that way if you really work on sharing the music again you know and, and hearing it in your head and just sticking close to that on a day-to-day basis when you're in a situation like an audition or a recital or something You've already the homework you've done is connecting to that thing in your head day in day out. You just connect to that sound in your head so that when you get up and, and perform it, it's routine in a way. Um, it's not boring, but that element of it of, of of connecting to that sound in your head is something you do automatically. You're not going to get spooked as much yep. um, that day. I mean, of course, everybody gets spooked. I've, I've had trouble with nerves. I've I've folded on auditions before. Um, it's not fun. You you want to throw your horn against the wall. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I, you just kind of stick with it. And everybody told me, yep, that's what happens. You know, it's like, oh, okay, I thought I was just me. No, it happens to everybody. Jim Miller, who's the um, associate principal trombone of the L.A. Philharmonic, mm-hmm. he took 50 or 60, I forget what it was exactly, he took 50 or 60 professional auditions before he got the job at the L.A. Phil. Yeah. And he went everywhere from every response you could have, both yourself and from a committee. He played what he thought was a just a great audition in the first round, didn't get past the first round. He played an okay first round, an okay second round, got to the finals. I mean, mm-hmm. he said, what are they hearing that the other people didn't hear? Yeah. Or yeah. vice versa. And, you know, he started to realize he developed an almost sort of um, uh, laissez-faire kind of attitude of like, I'm going to do my thing. They can do what they want in the, as a committee. I'm just going to play the music the way I hear it, and that's it. Nice. And once he got that going, he started to get more success auditioning. 
because um, it wasn't a matter of, of his musicianship being in question or something he needed to change. Mm-hmm. That was that was in place. It was just a matter of committing to that moment of auditioning, and not in a way, it, it's a borderline thing, almost on apathy. It's yeah. not. Yeah. It's not. But you almost have to have this little sense of, yeah, here we go. <laughs> you know, it's going to be what it is, and um, and and relinquishing control. I think sometimes people who feel a lot of pressure are actually it's 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 a matter of they're lacking a feeling of control, mm-hmm. and rather than trying to figure out a way of how to get control, I think sometimes it's better to just relinquish that control, just give it up, let it go. Don't don't try to control a situation, and just let the let the music be um, a part of what you're doing right then. Just it's it's just you're sitting in a room, you're gonna play some music, and that's it, and. Uh, that, that's of course easier said than done. But if you sort of meditate on that when you're practicing, it can sort of help you um, find a, your own kind of mental equilibrium when you perform. Sure. Uh, yeah. Anyway, when you made the finals with Pacific and finally won Long Beach, did uh-huh. you go through a similar process, or what else did you change in your approach mentally and or in your playing? The Pacific Symphony audition was total beginner's luck. I had no inner voice because I was just I had no criteria to, to compare myself to, to what I'd done in the past uh, because it was my first time out and mm-hmm. I, I had not touched an excerpt in so long I really had a very loose kind of attitude I practiced really hard preparing and I prepared with my my bandmates in the group I was playing in heard me preparing these excerpts so I was mm-hmm. playing sort of for them all the time they knew my whole repertoire. <laughs> inside and out by the time we were by the time I they were so happy when I finally auditioned they didn't have to hear William Tell again nice um, uh, but but it was I, I think my preparation for that was really good uh, in that I was I had a bunch of ears on the other side of the wall listening to me and I knew that um, and I was I was very regular and when I was practicing it was like every day at 2.30 I was cranking out excerpts so I had a routine yeah there was a rhythm to it daily that was really good mm-hmm. um when I prepared for other auditions subsequently, I was kind of struggling to find time to audition, um, and that was tough. And I, I, even though I got into a fairly regular routine, I was always under the gun with time. That mm-hmm. was always really hard, and I was married by that time afterwards at every other audition I took, and it was very challenging to maintain a life and then be able to prepare an audition. Yeah. Um, uh so I'd say that beginner's luck thing is really good, and I think sometimes when you hear about young players coming right out of music school and they get to the finals for a major symphony, I think that's what's going on with them a lot of the time. Uh, they kind of have this great attitude about music because they don't really care. They don't have a vested mm-hmm. interest. They don't have they don't have any dis- they don't have any disappointments to compare themselves to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's easier um, when you're really young sometimes to do auditions. Um, now for the Long Beach audition, I just come off the. Joe Alessi seminar, so I'd really got my butt kicked in a positive way. Yeah, um, and I had a really strong uh, that mental picture. I I just hung out with twenty five of the best young players in the country, um, and you know, hanging out with Joe Alessi and some of the other players who were there as auditors. Actually, too, there were some amazing players auditing that summer. Uh, Lisa Albrecht and mm. other, and the, the Dave Bignosh, who now teaches at Texas Christian. I mean, there's yeah. some really hot. There were some hot players just hanging out there. So you know, you were you were being judged in a good way, and it was a very positive atmosphere. It sort of made you think, this is possible. This is something I can do. And so when I um, we did a mock audition and that went well. I didn't, you know, Joe had some things to say to me and he, 
you know, I went out when I went to that seminar. I was sort of the commercial guy mm -hmm. <laughs> um, who played some orchestral music, and I, I still sort of that's sort of the way I see myself um, in some way. Some ways, I'm not an orchestral trombonist the same way I'm not a jazz trombonist. I, I love different kinds of music, but I yeah. could never. You know what I'm saying, John? I mean, you know what that's that's about. So uh, <laughs> I, so, I live it. Yeah. So. Um, uh, Although I think you went way further with orchestral stuff than I ever I ever did, but anyway, that's another topic. But the um, but I you know I I kind of got the idea that I you know this is feeling pretty good. So when that audition came up right subsequently, I prepared for it. I practiced really hard and it was going really well. But then and I was taking a lesson with Byron Peebles one day, mm -hmm. and just about two weeks before the audition, and I and I was leaving Byron's house and I got a phone call for a job for a big movie mm -hmm. and it included the movie included all day, the day of the audition. Oof. So this was my first call really with, a, with this one particular contractor. And I thought, Oh boy, I really can't say no to this. I guess it's in the cards for me not to do this audition. So I bailed on it. I bailed on the audition and this is two weeks before, about two weeks before I bailed. Hmm. And, um, so I didn't touch the excerpts. I put everything away. It's like I was kind of bummed. You know, I was, oh, well. Mm -hmm. Two days before that Monday when the audition was, on the Saturday, I got a call from the answering service saying they'd canceled the recording session that I took. <laughs> but I was going to get paid. Because nice. they, 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 they were supposed to give us 96 hours warning. Sure. And if they sure. do it after that, then they cancel you with pay. Wow. So my wife, my wife looked at me and said, so are you going to do the audition now that you're free? I said, oh, what do you mean? Are, are you crazy? I haven't touched those excerpts for two weeks. You married an yeah. awesome lady. And she said, listen, pal, you're getting paid that day. You're going to get paid to go take an audition. Nice. <laughs> it's the worst it could be. And so I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. So I called. I was doing. I was in the middle of doing a show, actually, too. This is to make it more complicated. <laughs> doing eight shows a week of Gypsy. So I called... The French horn player was playing in the in the pit with me, mm -hmm. so I had to do I had to do four shows, Saturday and Sunday. Wow! I had two shows Saturday, two shows Sunday. I decided to sub out Sunday night, the night mm -hmm. before the audition. But I did two shows Saturday, and I did the show Sunday. In between shows on Saturday and before the show on Sunday, I made Nathan Campbell, the French horn player, I, I made him listen to me play through the list. Nice. And he gave me a few tips, and he says, "You know what? I think you're ready." And he was real—he's a real positive guy. And I said, "Well, whether I am or not, I'm going to do it." So I went down and I played. And I'd say the first round I was very functional. I thought whatever, but I think all the other players, all of whom I knew, there were a lot of really good young, you know, good young and established players auditioning uh, for the, for that day. I think a couple of people had bad, really bad days for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And I got through the first round. So I got through the first round, and I got through the second round, and then they narrowed it down to me and one other player, Jeannie Little, who was living out oh. here at the time. And so Jeannie and I, we, we struck up a good friendship all of a sudden right then, and we were in the we, – we, uh, actually, it was real loose by then. We were both so happy to get to the finals. Mm -hmm. So we, we each played, I think, three or four final rounds. They went they made us play Bolero three or four times. They made us play Rennish wow. three or four times. It was brutal. They were definitely doing the <laughs> – the, the, let's, let's see. Let's, let's go till they drop. Yeah. And they ended up not hiring either of us. Nice. And so right. they, then they each brought us back for a week with the orchestra. And um, my program was pretty good. I remember I did Rachmaninoff second, mm -hmm. and um, I think it might have been a Brahms violin concerto. 
And so there wasn't a lot to play on that concert, but there was enough, a few little things, and my concert was actually better than Jeannie. I forget what Jeannie played, but her concert was kind of a weird concert in general. Mm-hmm. And, but but it, she ended up subbing a lot with our orchestra, so we ended yeah. up playing a lot yeah. together down there. But but it, that's the way that went down, and it, and it was... Um, it was kind of a uh, kind of a, a, a surreal experience for me because um, having not really prepared that much, I, I wouldn't recommend that strategy of not touching the excerpts for the last two weeks before an audition. Sure, um, but there was something to it that I think actually helped me yeah. at that point. Um, so, I, and again, it was a little bit of that apathy, you know, that was kind of helpful um, in certain ways. Your chops aren't as up. Maybe you're not as accurate. But there's a kind of a looseness to your sound and and your approach musically that you're really relying on your musical instincts rather than your trombone yeah. kind of yeah. technical. It's hat. music and it's fresh and free rather than you know a rehearsed prepared recitation. Studied. Yeah, there you go. I you said it better than I could. Yeah. <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> hey, let me ask you one last question here. Sure. Uh, we hope to have you around for another 150 years, but God <laughs> forbid if you know you get hit by a, a falling plane tomorrow. Yeah. What's the legacy you'd like to leave for <laughs> your fans and for your students and for people on this planet? Well, that's a good question. Uh, boy, that's a man, John. It's like, I, don't you want to know what mouthpiece I play on my bass trombone? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> <laughs> good. Um, I, I'd say that. Uh, a lot of I'd say maybe part of the legacy. I'm, I'm going to sort of circle around in my own inimitable way to get to the my point, but um, which I'm not sure of at this point. But one of the parts of it is we've touched on it sort of indirectly, and but I think this is really a big part of, for me of of music. Music is music, and there we are pre-programmed by our culture to categorize and then maybe this is one aspect of being a human being but i really like to think beyond category when it comes to music music is its own category Mm -hmm. and and each musician is his or her own category each composer is his or her own category i i really think that the musicians to me that and and the musical performances that i hear transcend um genre and i don't think you know, Duke Ellington does not fit neatly into the history of jazz. I mean, in a lot of ways, he, he's sort of his own little side chapter. Same with Miles Davis. Same with Gustav Mahler. Same with, um, you know, I mean, you can every every great musician that you can think of um, paved their own way, mm-hmm. and they sort of were able to break free of this categorization that you. Used to see in record stores when the you know the the jazz room was separate from the classical room and pop music was over here and Latin music was over here and it was mm-hmm. it was an easy way to sell stuff because people could find what they were looking for yep. but very often they only looked for what they were looking for they they didn't look beyond the one thing they already knew they wanted mm-hmm. and I think sometimes in music I th- I think that's the thing I love that's why I love bringing a small bore tenor into an orchestra that's why I I, I like um, I, you know, I like being able to play. I, lo- I loved being able to play. Um, I, I was just telling someone this the other day. I, I, I remember one day I was playing at Disneyland, actually, and I was playing in a uh, brass quintet. That that afternoon I was playing in a concert band at Long Beach Municipal Band, which is the world's, the country's oldest municipal band. 
Um, actually, used, wow. to be, con- used to be conducted by Herbert L. Clark back back in the day in the twenties. And it's a great group. It's still going on. Um, I haven't played with them for 10, 15 years now, but that was a great group. I played it with several summers. And they do concert band music and they break down into a jazz band. So I do a two-hour concert with them, and then that, that night I was blasting up the 101 to go play with Louis Belson's band. <laughs> so I went from playing euphonium in a brass quintet, um, playing big tenor and small tenor in a in a, in the municipal band, and then blasting up to play jazz with Louis Belson. And it was nice. such a treat to get to do all these things. And, and I, I really almost felt bad for people that only see themselves as a specific, so, you know, quote unquote, insert style here type yeah, of player. Yeah. The I legit mean, guy or the jazz I'm guy. Legit, yeah. And, and I, I think maybe just if someone else will see that, that, that those names are, are not necessary uh, to the, I mean, they are helpful in certain ways, and there are certain demands of certain kinds of music uh, that require certain skill sets and, and certain concepts. Mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. there's no doubt about it. It's it's a different mindset walking and playing uh, a Brahms symphony trombone part than it is playing a Stan Kenton style big band chart. I mean, sure. it's definitely a right. difference. But I'd say some of those, some of the things musically that you have to do. Um, you know, there's more in common with a with a, a Pete Rogolo chart and a and an Igor Stravinsky piece than there is between a Mozart symphony and a Mahler symphony. I mean, Absolutely. I think you know, there, if you okay, you're going across uh, genres, but musically, the demands of that music are very similar. So I, I that's a silly. It ends up Absolutely. all these categorizations become kind of they, we we cut our nose off to spite our face. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I guess the bottom line is that. My, if I if I were to leave a legacy musically, it would be that there are certain things that you you don't have to limit yourself to. It's not necessary to make um, unnecessary limiting choices about what it is that you are as an artist, as a musician. There is more possible than you might realize. And to say to uh, to sort of reject that notion, it, be able to be a little bit of a rebel. Uh, with that notion of, oh, well, he's a this kind of player or he's a that kind of player. When you hear people talking that way, it's good to just sort of <laughs> scratch your head and say, well, I wonder. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, and I and I know that there are other musicians that feel this way. I know Joe Alessi feels that way. Oh he's, yeah. He's yeah. Uh, he really he really is very good at seeing beyond uh, a, a a a typecast of of what a player is. He was so good to me and so open to me, even though my everything on paper pointed to me being a commercial jazz kind of player. He was great with me, working with me, mm-hmm. and, and treating me, working with me the way he would work with one of his students, Juilliard, who was specifically a, an orchestral player. He didn't cut. He didn't cut me any slack at all. Yeah. And yeah. I, I really appreciated that, and I told him so. I mean, I when before we started, I said, don't make any, don't make any um, adjustments for me. Yeah, I don't want to be. I don't want to make excuses, and um, I don't want you to say, "Well, that would be fun." You know, this is harder for you than it is for the other guys. And I said, "Well, <laughs> I would have something rather ruthless to say if you told me that." <laughs> uh, so, so that that's maybe I don't know if this is sort of hitting on it exactly. And I, the other thing is just interpersonally. I I, I think, you know, as a work ethic, um, I like to go to work and get everyone in the room. I like to be a part of something where everyone in the room is on the same page for what needs to be done musically. Yeah. How that happens can vary, but I really like it when the players, the conductor, the composer, whoever's there, either in the, on the creative side of the music or the recreative side of the music, they're kind of together and making 
making headway together rather than getting stuck up in their own agendas. Yeah. Um, and that's, I try to be a, a force for that when I'm, when I go to work. Um, and, and I'm, and I mean that in a pure capital W work sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think that we, it's almost, we almost limit ourselves as musicians saying we play music for a living. Uh, that, that ends up making it seem almost like forever adolescent. It's almost this Peter Pan quality to it. And it's not, <laughs> It's not. We are working when we're when we're there, and, and when we're when we're with other human beings trying to do the same thing. That is work, and it might be fun yeah. work, yeah. Uh, but it is work, and, and you have to treat it. Yeah, you have to treat it with that kind of respect. And and I I really try to make sure that by the time we get all the music on the right side of the of the music stand over to the left side of the music stand, everybody's happy with it. We're out on time. Everything sounds really good, and then we get called back. Yeah. All of us, you know. I, I don't. Some people are out to get other people off gigs, or maybe they think somebody else uh, shouldn't be there, or whatever. I, you know, when we're in that room, we're all there together, and, mm-hmm. and we 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 live and die by each other. And and if everybody sort of has that attitude, and I that's been something that's been in, in, instilled in me by uh, the players I work with that have the same attitude. And I hope to share that with other people too when we're there working together. It's it's really. It's such a powerful thing when you're when you feel like you're on board with an, another group of musicians. It's it's a magical thing that can happen, and um, you know some great some great moments can happen that go beyond anybody's expectations when everybody kind of works together and without this sort of nonverbal way, you know, just kind of make it work. Yeah. And uh, rather than getting caught up in, I think it should be this way. Well, I think it should be that you know, just like how can we make this work? Let's go together here, you know. I'm a little flat. You're a little sharp. Let's let's meet halfway. Okay, yeah. done. <laughs> let's so, make it work. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time, your wisdom, sure. your insight, and uh, I want to encourage everybody that's listening to go check out StarsTeachMusic.com. There's several amazing videos there with great players and several featuring yourself. And where else uh, should we go on the web or our online or albums to check out so we can support you and your endeavors? Well, yeah. Eventually, there will be a solo album. I'm not sure when. It's it's in the planning stages. It's been in the planning stages for a long time. I I just can't seem to focus on one thing. I, my <laughs> friends bug me. Andy Martin was giving me a hard time the other day about when are you going to make a record? You know, I was, oh, you know, if Andy's bugging me about it, it's it's really bad. Um, but he uh, but it's um, the things. I mean, on on the internet, you know, there's still a couple YouTube things of me playing some some of my wacky solo and accompanied things. Um, I'm working on a couple more of those that, that will probably be, you know, somebody will probably videotape those somewhere. I don't usually do them myself. Other people post those, I, but somehow they end up on the internet. <laughs> um, I, you know, I played with Gordon Goodwin's band and never, mm-hmm. never, I never really had any solos while I was with the band, but um, some, there's some stuff with Bob Florence's band. And also I, I played some kind of more avant-garde kind of solos, for lack of a better word, with Joey Sellers. Mm. Um, I played a lot of stuff with, with Tom Kubis. There's a few things. If you go to... Um, there's a, a website uh, run by a guy named Geo Washington Wright mm-hmm. uh, that's called The Usual Suspects, and um, it's um, it's it sort of features all the musicians that do studio work out here in Los Angeles, all the all the freelance players out here. He has a he kind of has a an interest in uh, in the recording community that we have out here, and he's done little profiles and tribute pages to a lot of the musicians that play out here, including. Um, you know, Bill Reichenbach, all the trombone players, Bill Reichenbach, Alan Kaplan, Dick Nash, Andy Martin, Bobby Chesney, myself, um, Charlie Loper. All the all the players are sort of featured, and there's little snippets of our playing. You can nice. hear some of that stuff. And that's there. at lastudiomusicians.net. Is that what it is? Yes, sir. 
Okay, you knew that. Thank you. I'm glad you're somebody's keeping track. It's Google. I, I, <laughs> yeah, you can Google it, and, and yeah, and it's 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 kind of fun. It's fun to hear. It. And there's some great stuff with Jerry Hay, all those horn parts that he wrote in the 70s and 80s for Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Michael Jackson. Oh, you forget how great all that stuff is, and those there's little clips of that, and plus there's some PDFs of the parts. For oh, some of those things, oh. it's a really fun. That's a fun website. You can spend hours there. It's nice. Geo, um, Geo's done an amazing job with that website. I'm totally impressed. He's also an excellent arranger and uh, composer himself. He's nice. a really nice. talented guy. So check him out too. I'd, I'd recommend him for sure. Well, to sum up, I couldn't say it any better than uh, the Alex Isles tribute page at LASTudioMusicians.net. The very first sentence says, Alex is an awesome trombonist and a super nice cat. And uh, just got to say thanks for your time and thanks for being a great human, teacher, mentor, and uh, coach. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, John. I, I always enjoy catching up with you and keeping track of what you're up to, the latest thing you're up to. You're an awesome player yourself, and you've really just grown into a, an outstanding professional and it's great to see. It's, it always makes me feel good when I run into people on their way into the world and they, they're so well-established and still enjoying it after after they've been at it for a while. It's great. Bravo to you. Well, thank you, sir. I look forward to torturing sure. you soon. <laughs> okay. Have a good day. All right, John. Take care. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Hello, sir. Oh. Hey, do you hear Hello. that sound? Yes. That's the sound of a man hitting his head on a desk repeatedly and swearing. <laughs> um, are we are we kind of figured out now, or do you think? I think so. Um, I reset the router, reset the other thing, killed the other iChat. So with any luck, we are golden. And if you have a few minutes and patience, let's rock. How's that? Are you there? Yes, sir. You are loud and clear. Oh, there we go. Okay, there we go. I just went back to the built-in mic. Hey, that well, that works. That's groovy for me, sir. Okay. <laughs> so my my great, I think my Zoom thing is for some reason isn't working with this, and I'm oh. not sure why because it worked the other night perfectly. Awesome. Well, I, my I wife says I, I have the black thumb for technology, so uh, if you build it, I can break it. <laughs> No, I think I'm the one. I, I don't even have any thumbs. I am. I'm a. I'm a technological paraplegic. Nice. <laughs> Quadriplegic. Well, I'll trade. I'll trade some of my tech chops for some of your trombone chops. What do you say? <laughs> God. Oh, um, that I can't count on it, it, it delivering to anyone. So, um, but uh, maybe on a good day, it'd be all right. But uh, anyway, where were we? I think I was giving you my life story. It's our last. Uh, okay. 